1: on the readout. This house and the speaker herself were specifically targets of the defendant. Can
2: you definitively say now this was obviously
3: politically motivated?
1: Yes, it appears as though this was based on his statements um, and comments that were made in that house during his encounter with Mr. Pelosi that this was politically motivated.
3: After years of targeting Nancy Pelosi with violent rhetoric and imagery, right-wing Republicans are resorting to vile conspiracy theories and whataboutism to try to downplay their role in the violent attack on her husband. Plus, the right-wing majority on the Supreme Court seems poised to dismantle yet another icon of 20th century progress, taking aim today at affirmative action. And surprise, surprise, they don't seem too supportive of campus diversity. Ellie Mastal and Yamiche Alcindor will break down the arguments in the High Court today. And how Republicans are playing the pundits with skewed polling data and taking control of the narrative about the upcoming elections. We begin tonight with the latest on the violent assault of Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. In just the last hour, San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins announced charges against David Depape, the man who allegedly attacked Mr. Pelosi with a hammer in the couple's San Francisco home. They include attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon and threats against a public official. And this comes after the Justice Department announced federal charges earlier today, including attempted kidnapping and assault with attempt to retaliate against a federal official by threatening or injuring a family member. The federal complaint shared more details on the attack, saying DePape was arrested inside the Pelosi residence. Mr. Pelosi later described to police that he had been asleep when DePape, whom he had never seen before, entered his bedroom looking for Nancy Pelosi. After police officers arrived and restrained DePape, they secured a roll of tape, white rope, a second hammer, a pair of rubber and cloth gloves, and zip ties from the crime scene. During a police interview, DePape said he was going to hold hostage Nancy Pelosi and talk to her. He also told investigators if Nancy were to tell DePape the truth, he would let her go. And if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps. The details only confirm the nature of this attack, an attempted assault against one of the highest-ranking women ever to serve in U.S. government. And instead of condemning the violence, some Republicans and their far-right allies are spreading conspiracies about the attack to score cheap political points with their most easily duped and malevolent supporters. Donald Trump Jr., who continues to try to remain relevant, to be frank, retweeted a proposed Paul Pelosi Halloween costume, featuring men's underwear and a hammer, while Louisiana Republican Clay Higgins tweeted, then deleted, a false anti-LGBT conspiracy theory surrounding the attack. The tweeting and then deleting didn't end there. Elon Musk, the new Twitter CEO, posted baseless allegations about the attack, proving what a hellscape of hate and misinformation Musk Twitter has already become on his watch. There's a long history of gaslighting and toxic politics regarding Speaker Pelosi. Republicans see her as public enemy number one. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy once said, it will be hard not to hit Pelosi with the speaker's gavel. Well, in 2019, Marjorie Taylor, seemed to be ex-Mrs. Green, liked a Facebook comment that said, quote, a bullet to the head would be quicker to remove Pelosi. There was also an anti-Pelosi ad by Lauren Boebert, that ended with a menacing sound effect.
4: Madam Speaker, tear down this wall.
3: And even as recently as last week, days before the attack, Republican Congressman Tom Emmer posted a far too literal interpretation of the fire Pelosi campaign. So no, it's not random. It's not about blue state crime, nor is it an isolated act. It is the event that, along with January 6th, solidifies and cements a new era of political violence, an era normalized, justified, and created by rhetoric so violent and so hateful that brutality is the natural endpoint. After all, isn't that the point of fascism? To create a dictatorship of violence and fear I'm joined now by Clint Watts, former consultant with the FBI Counterterrorism Division and distinguished research professor—research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, along with Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Thank you both for being here. I want to play one more soundbite of Brooke Jenkins, the district attorney in San Francisco, and here she is talking about the political violence that we're facing now.
1: We know that there have been tragedies um, in this very city of political leaders in the past. and so it's something that we have to take very seriously. And it's very sad to see that we are once again at a point in history where people believe that it's OK to express their political sentiments through violence. And so I think it really demonstrates um, that we have to calm things down. We have to decide that we are going to be more respectful as an American society, um, that it's OK to disagree. Uh, but it certainly is something that has unnerved us all.
3: You know, one wishes that people would would, would would feel that way, Clint, but that is not what we're seeing. What we're seeing on the right is they'll say, well, violence is not appropriate, but none of them are willing to do anything to tamp down what's clearly a tendency toward increasingly violent political rhetoric. I've never seen in—I've been watching politics a long time. There are more ads now with Republicans shooting guns, shooting weapons— trying to show themselves looking like warlords and I've ever seen in politics. That's now normal in Republican politics. Is there any way that that kind of activity does not contribute to the kind of violence that we just saw happen to the speaker's husband?
2: Uh, Joy, it doesn't until political leaders uh, really take responsibility for what they say and for the outcomes that come from it. And I, I just always think back to John McCain when he was on the campaign trail against Barack Obama, standing up when there was a lie said right in front of him. And and whether that was good for him politically or not, he corrected it, and he tried to settle down the situation. You know, he tried to take it down a notch. The opposite happens every single day in America today. You see increasing heightening of this. And the other part is just desensitization. I You know, when I saw the alert on my phone that this tragedy had happened, I was not surprised. I am shocked, but I am not surprised because... Nancy Pelosi has been demonized and is probably the number one negative sentiment in terms of social media, we'd say negative sentiment of any political leader in the United States over the last five to 10 years. Uh, it is not surprising that she would be targeted or demonized. The rhetoric has gone from not just maligning her for her political views, but openly calling for attacks. January 6, almost all of the audio is, is talking about finding Nancy Pelosi and trying to kill her or capture her. And then add to that, you know, the state of things today where we're in a state of stochastic terrorism, meaning there's such outsized reach for these conspiracies. I think that's what you see in Mr. DePape's social media postings. It's a convergence of many, not just one, but many conspiracy theories which all lead to her, which point towards her. And the problem is we know who the target is going to be. We just don't know who is going to target her. And I, I think I worry so much in the next week for Election workers, a lot of law enforcement and and security forces at state capitals and and polling places around the country, what they're going to be going through and a potential copycat. There's nothing to say another political leader in the U.S. that's been demonized and won't be targeted. So it's it's just an unbelievable state that we're in this country, that we're this numb to it at this point.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the fact that she's a woman, you know, we saw Gretchen Whitmer face these kind of threats of being kidnapped and, quote unquote, interrogated by people on the right. Women seem to be a particular target, although there have been men who've also been, you know, men who've dared to vote to impeach Donald Trump, male Republican members of Congress have also gotten death threats. But it's sort of across the board. Um, Let me play what President Biden had to say about the attack.
5: The chant was, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? This is despicable. There's no place in America. There's too much
3: violence, political violence, too much hatred, too much vitriol. Except, you know, Charlie, there has been a place for it. You know, um, Clint did mention John McCain, but his running mate at that time was Sarah Palin whose rallies people yelled kill him regarding Barack Obama, Um, you know, threats against President Obama. The threats were incredibly high. It was one of the highest rates of racist threats against a presidential candidate to the point where he had to have added security. So he was the hate object at that time. But so was Speaker Pelosi even then. The right has been playing this game for a really long time. And I don't care what Tom Emmer says trying to defend himself. He literally is the guy in charge of their reelect campaigns in the House. And his ad showed him shooting an automatic weapon. What's the point of that? And then it says fire Pelosi at the end. What are people supposed to take from that?
6: Well, I think people ought to be aware of the incredible escalation of these threats of violence and the culture of violence. Uh, Clint is absolutely right. Uh, It's no longer shocking because, you know, January 6th, I think, unleashed something. I mean, it was uh, it was not a one-time uh, event. It's a turning point where, in fact, you saw the celebration of violence. And even though I think it could have been an occasion for sobriety, for people to say, OK, ma- now we need to tone down the rhetoric. Look what can happen, where we are going. Exactly the opposite has happened. The rhetoric has been ramped up. There has been an attempt to, to um, you, know, uh, you know, portray some of that violence violence. violence as acts of patriotism. So here you have uh, Mr. DuPay, uh, who, when he's he's arrested by the police, explains that one of the reasons why he didn't flee after the 911 call was because he thought of himself as um, in the same position as American revolutionaries fighting against British tyranny. He has internalized this idea that his violence is justified politically because he is a revolutionary. Look, this doesn't didn't just come out of a vacuum. This has been cultivated. I will also say that this weekend felt like a turning point itself. As bad as everything has been going, I do not recall in the wake of the shooting of Steve Scalise the kind of humor, the kind of rationalization and celebration of violence that you are now seeing on the right. The number of prominent right-wing figures, including elected officials, we pushing pushing baseless com, uh, conspiracy theories without any uh without any evidence whatsoever um and and actually seeming to celebrate this attack so when you have a culture that does not stand up against the threats of violence and then finds a way to rationalize it enable it And maybe wink at it that maybe you're doing the right thing. Should we be surprised if some unbalanced individuals uh, react to all of that? So things have been getting more and more dangerous. I do think that January 6th was a turning point. But I also think we'll look back on this weekend and the reaction to it as as a turning point. And by the way, that includes the fact that the new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, Uh, did turn Twitter into a full-blown hellscape when he himself began uh, pushing some of these conspiracy theories to millions of his customers.
3: Yeah, and I mean, look, the, the whataboutism that they've tried was one tactic yeah. t- saying that this is just about blue state crime. Sorry, but the, the the guy who wants to be speaker, his district in California is actually the most violent district in the state of California. He's got the number one violent crime rate of all of the districts in the state. So I don't really think that Kevin McCarthy has a place to stand there. But Tom Emmer, to the point, Clint, um, when it comes to the Steve Scalise situation, he t- Emmer— Congressman Emmer tried to roll that one out. But here's the difference. There was no advertising campaign by Democrats saying that Steve Scalise ought to be shot showing Steve's Scalise inside of targets, like they did with people like Speaker Pelosi, like they've done with President Obama. He was not being hung in effigy. Democrats were not leading a campaign saying that to be a patriot, you need to consider those people to be a lethal threat to you, and that you need to have a gun. You need to have as big a gun as you can get and go out and do target practice because those Democrats dot, dot, dot. That's the difference. You have a political party that is now running on the idea that true patriotism is to take up arms against the Democrats because they are somehow your enemy and evil and that anything is possible because they are a bunch of, what are they doing, QAnon? They're saying they're they're hiding children in their basements to abuse them. Well, why wouldn't somebody say, well, you know what, if I'm going to save the children, I guess I got to take up a gun. They are using this as politics. That's dangerous, Clint.
2: Yeah, and it's not equal. Uh, Saying you're going to vote someone out of office as part of a campaign, uh, that's normal. I I think that's what you see in most uh, campaigns. This is saying you're either going to detain or kill someone, that the only way to remove them from power is literally to kill them. Uh, That is not some sort of equal standing in in terms of political speech. Separately, whenever we see this stochastic terrorism, it's the odds of someone with outsized voice. The larger their audience, the larger their following, the more impact their speech has, which means if they advance baseless conspiracy, like Charlie was talking about with Elon Musk, guess what you would find this morning if you looked up Pelosi on Twitter? A lie. Not only once or twice, you would find it in a ratio maybe 10 to 20 times, what you'd find in terms of the truth. Separately, that demonization over time, when you see it every single day, just think back to 1980 or even 1990. Would people even know who these individuals were? Probably right. not. But why do we know it? It's because of the speech of those that are amplifying it on social media.
7: A
3: hundred percent. And if yeah. uh, Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker of the House, the House will be run by the people who are doing this. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, what's his name? Matt Gates in Florida. Um, Lauren Boebert, he will have to give them all gavels. They will have actual real power because he is too weak to stop them and he will need them in order to rule. This is scary stuff, you guys, but scaring is caring, as we say on this show. Clint Watts, Charlie Sykes, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, eight days, just eight days till the midterms. And anti-Semitism, because it's all coming back. Well, that's once again rearing its ugly head across the country, too, including in the Pennsylvania governor's race. Democratic candidate Josh Shapiro joins us next. And one programming note before we go to break, My special guest tomorrow will be the former Secretary of State and Democratic candidate for president, Hillary Rodham Clinton. We'll discuss the midterms, election deniers, and the deranged conspiracy theories on the right about the Pelosi's. You are not going to want to miss it.
4: We can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
8: They had long hours and sore backs and bad knees to get that Social Security. And if Ron Johnson does not understand that, if he understands giving tax breaks for private planes more than he understands, making sure that seniors who've worked all their lives are able to retire with
0: dignity and respect. He's not the person who's thinking about you and knows you and sees you, and he should not be your senator from Wisconsin.
3: He's back. Barack Obama did not hold back about Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson over the weekend. With just eight days until the midterm elections, the former president is bringing some major heat to the campaign trail for Democrats and making clear that democracy itself is on the ballot. Here's what he had to say about Wisconsin's election deniers running for Senate and Governor Ron Johnson and Tim Michaels.
8: They are literally just making stuff up. Mandela's opponent has done more than just about anybody in Congress to spread conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. I mean, he he has a gold medal in that event. Tony's opponent said if he's elected governor, he'll dissolve the bipartisan Elections Commission. He basically just wants, I guess, to be able to decide on his own how elections turned
3: out or not. He even said he's open to signing a bill to overturn the results of the last election. Of course, Wisconsin is far from the only battleground state with a candidate for governor who thinks that he should have final say over elections. There's also Pennsylvania, where the future elections in the Keystone State is very much at stake. With election-denying candidate for governor Doug Mastriano, one of the architects of the attempt to overturn Pennsylvania's election, and an avowed Christian nationalist. Former President Obama and President Biden will team up in Philadelphia on Saturday to campaign for Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman and Democratic candidate for governor Josh Shapiro. And I'm joined now by Josh Shapiro, the current Pennsylvania attorney general and gubernatorial candidate. Thanks for being here. Welcome back. Uh, I understand we were like first on your list when you started this whole thing, and so I'm glad to see <laughs> you back here. Um, That's talk right. To me ab- thank you. Talk to me about this um, This. I guess I don't know how to describe it, this kind of world in which you're running for governor. Um, you're an already elected <laughs> official. You're, your state already knows you. People there know who you are. But the attacks on you, I have to say, have been gross. They haven't been on policy. They've been on who you are. This is um, some of what Doug Mastriano has tweeted. Um, well, he got an endorsement from Carrie Lake, which in and of itself is a little bit scary. Um, right. Anti-Semitic stuff. In a new filing, Mastriano says that he accepted a campaign donation from the CEO of Gab, which if people don't know what that is, it's basically Nazi Twitter, racist, far, far right racist Twitter. Um, his attacks on where your kids go to school um, has strong anti-Semitic signaling. Um, and his advisor has questioned your faith and called you at best a secular Jew. It's gross stuff. I'm sorry to have to present it to you. Yeah. Has it? How does that play out in real life as you're trying to campaign?
8: I mean, look, first off, it, it really isn't about how I feel in this whole thing or the attacks against me personally. But every time Doug Mastriano attacks my faith or tries to dictate who's allowed to be Jewish or who's allowed to be Christian, something that he and his team do every single day, um, it makes us all less safe. This isn't about me personally, but it's about his attacks against the good people of Pennsylvania. You see, if you don't think like Doug Mastriano and look like him and worship like him and vote like him and marry like him, then you don't count in his Pennsylvania. And my view is no matter what you look like, where you come from, who you love or who you pray to, I want to be your governor and I want to bring people together to actually solve some problems. He just wants to continually divide us. Look, he is by far the most dangerous and extreme candidate running for high office in the nation. And he must be defeated in eight days here in Pennsylvania.
3: You know, um Mastriano is a Christian nationalist, I think a proud Christian nationalist. What would that mean for women in your state? Because I think he's very clear that he would like to see abortion completely banned. Um, What would it mean for people who are not members of the Christian faith if he were to run the state? Yeah. And I I, I want to say, let me just make a little edit there because I grew up in the church. This is not regular Christianity because there are lots of Christians who don't believe any of this stuff. It's his own faction of Christianity, just to be clear. Yeah.
8: Look, I was in Mount Carmel Baptist Church this weekend in Philly talking about this very issue. Look, Joy, I I draw inspiration from my faith. I'm a person of deep faith. My faith calls me to serve others, but it doesn't dictate the policies that I am for or the positions that I take. Doug Mastriano couldn't be more different. He uses his faith as a tool to deny others their fundamental rights and freedoms, Listen, um, he is using his faith to try and tell the women of Pennsylvania that they can't make decisions over their own bodies. They can't have an abortion here in Pennsylvania. He has made clear that he wants no exceptions, and he will charge women with murder here in the Commonwealth uh, if they make that decision over their own body. He has used his faith as a tool to disenfranchise voters. He used his faith as an excuse when he was part of the mob that stormed up to the Capitol. And he uses his faith on January 6th and he uses his faith as a tool to say that he will not certify all of the votes in 2024. He talks about decertifying certain voting machines. You see, he uses his faith As a way to try and oppress others, to stop others from exercising their freedoms and having their personal rights. He is unbelievably and uniquely dangerous.
3: You know, Donald Trump is is as well, (laughs) I I think it's fair to say. And he's already threatening to contest the election results in your state before they even happen. Are you concerned that the elections in Pennsylvania, if they are close, will wind up in endless litigation or that they'll be contested again by outside parties. Uh, Ted Cruz might be headed your way. The Astros are playing in the uh, in the World Series. He is an Astros fan. We don't want him here in
8: Pennsylvania. Yeah, we don't want him here. You reflect the Bronx. (laughs) Well, let let me tell you, I saw what happened to him in New York. Wait till he shows up in Philly. Um, (laughs) They won't be having any of that. Look, Look, Joy, you and I have spoken over the years about the work I did in 2020 to defeat 43 lawsuits from the former president and his enablers like Doug Mastriano, they went 0-43. Oh, I went 43-0, and oh, and we had a free and fair, safe and secure election here in Pennsylvania. And we had that because we had clerks of elections, Republican and Democrat, all across Pennsylvania who simply did their job. Doug Mastriano is trying to interfere with that work. He has made clear he won't accept The results of this election just like the other one. I have faith in the good people of Pennsylvania. I will respect their will. And I'm totally confident that if they try and litigate anything, that um, it will be proven as it was in 2020 to just be absolute made up nonsense. Um, That is what Doug Mastriano continues to spew to this day about 2020. We had a free and fair, safe and secure election here, and I'm confident we will again.
3: All right. Uh, well, Josh Shapiro, good luck with your campaign. I know that uh, President Obama is headed your way. If you see him, feel free to let him know he's welcome to come on the show. Tell him it's a nice place. He can come and hang out with us anytime. Let him know. If I'll you, tell you him. I'll send him your love. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. Uh, Pennsylvania Thank Attorney you. General and Gubernatorial candidate Josh Shapiro. Thank you. Still ahead. The Supreme Court weighs in on whether college admission policies that include race as a factor should continue. And so far, the right wing justices, well, uh, they seem prepared to do exactly what you expect. We'll bring you that latest, the latest on that next.
0: On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. A day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
4: Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
3: The Supreme Court appears poised to put an end to affirmative action, the precedent that allows colleges to consider a student's race in admissions and something universities say is essential to assuring diversity on campus. Today, the high court heard more than five hours of arguments in two cases, one challenging the University of North Carolina's practices and another similar case involving Harvard. To perhaps no one's surprise, the court's six conservative justices expressed deep skepticism of the program. Justice Clarence Thomas, who benefited from affirmative action to be admitted to Yale Law School, but then repudiated the practice that helped pave the way for him to literally be on the court and never stop complaining about how he felt diminished by it, asked affirmative action defenders a seemingly absurd question, particularly coming from him. He asked how diversity benefits education.
0: I didn't go to racially diverse schools, um, but there were educational benefits. And I'd like you to tell me expressly when a parent sends a kid to college that they don't necessarily send them there to have fun or feel good or anything like that. They send them there to learn physics or chemistry or whatever they're studying. So tell me what the educational benefits are.
3: Meanwhile, in the, in the minority, the three liberal justices defended affirmative action. So, Justice Sonia Sotomayor used statistics from states that have already barred the policy.
6: What we know,
9: um, we have nine states who have tried it, and, and each of them, as I mentioned earlier, whites have either—white admissions have either remained the same or increased, and clearly— In some institutions, the numbers for underrepresented groups has fallen dramatically, correct?
1: That's my understanding, yes.
3: Joining me now is Yamiche Alcindor, NBC News Washington correspondent and moderator of Washington Week on PBS, and Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation. Uh, Is that that about how the uh, arguments went on the right, uh, Yamiche? Uh, Clarence Thomas saying, I didn't see any benefit to having uh, (laughs) diversity.
9: That is basically how these arguments went. At one point, Justice Thomas asked, well, what exactly is diversity? Explain it to me. And then other justices asked questions like, well, why should race at all be something that even a, a student should check their box, even if they want to voluntarily give it to you, why should that matter at all? Um, but then you also heard from liberal justices like Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who only heard the first part of this, which is the part on UNC because she recused herself saying that she didn't want to be part of Harvard, the Harvard dispute, because she used to be part of the the, the structure of the university. They have the leadership there, which of course is notable given the fact that so many people have not recused themselves in other aspects of this corporate. I will digress on that. What I will say is this, Ketanji Brown's action brought up a really important point, which is why should legacy, meaning your grandparents and your parents who went to the schools, maybe like UNC and Harvard, why should that matter more than if someone is saying, well, my grandparents were enslaved? And as a result, I want to get into the school to honor their memory. There was a a real contentious back and forth on that. But this was in some ways one of the biggest days at the Supreme Court because we could see the end of affirmative action as we know
3: it, Joy. I mean, we likely will. I I have the Ketanji sound, just as you just mentioned. Let's listen.
4: As I understand your no-race-conscious admissions rule, these two applicants would have a dramatically different opportunity to tell their family stories and to have them count. The first applicant would be able to have his family background considered and valued by the institution as a part of its consideration of whether or not to admit him, while the second one wouldn't be able to because his story is in many ways bound up with his race and with the race of his ancestors. I had to play that to, so, the
3: uh, so that Clarence, so that Thurgood Marshall wouldn't haunt me. I needed to balance out the sound I played earlier from someone else. Um, Ellie, answer that question. I mean, how can a university turn around and say, I can consider that three generations of your family came here, and that can be a factor, but I can't consider your background and who you are.
10: Yeah, they, they can because the six justices, conservative justices on the Supreme Court will let them do it because they don't actually think the diversity is important. See, the other part of this, Clarence Thomas, like ridiculousness that you played is that he got an answer to his question. He got three answers to his question. One, Ryan Park, the Solicitor General of North Carolina, said that diversity is important because students learn better in diverse environment, and there are studies showing that. Thomas dismissed that. The second from Elizabeth Freelager saying that uh, that our colleges and universities are pipelines into every institution of the country, and she was specifically talking about the service academies and how if you want a diverse officer corps, because it shows that leadership is more legitimate if the officer corps looks like the rest of the nation and enlisted men, that that is an important reason for diversity, Thomas dismissed that. And then the lawyer for Harvard University said that there have been many studies that show that groups of investors are better at making investments when they are making those investments in a diverse environment. I love that argument because you can literally prove it with money. And again, Thomas dismissed that. So it's not like they actually disagreed with the arguments in favor of affirmative action. They simply pretended the arguments didn't exist. And that is a consistent thing we've seen from the Supreme Court. They ignore the actual facts on the ground in order to support their ridiculous narratives.
3: Yeah, including the fact that affirmative action benefits white women more than it does black people. I want to stay with you first second, Ellie, because what's being used here are Asian Americans to try to pit Asian American college ad, ad, admittees against black college attendees. You've tweeted a lot about this and, and the disingenuous Talk about that for a minute.
10: Yeah. So the Asian American uh, argument has been co-opted by these white wing people who have wanted for their entire careers to see affirmative action taken down. And you saw that because over five hours of Supreme Court argument, they never made the one to one connection for how affirmative action leads to discrimination against Asian Americans. In the North Carolina claim, case, literally Ryan Park, the Solicitor General, said that you can't make that argument because North Carolina admits a higher percentage of Asian American students than black students. It would be peculiar, he had said, to use that as an evidence for discrimination And the Harvard case is a little bit different. I think there actually are legitimate ways where you can argue that Asian-Americans have been discriminated against by Harvard University because they use a particular statistic called personal rating, which disadvantages Asian-Americans. But here's the thing. They never said how Harvard's use of that statistic actually has anything to do with affirmative action. And in fact, if they win, the thing that you won't be able to look at is people's race upon admission. But you will be able to still look at the racist statistic that is actually harming Asian-Americans. So that's the thing. When you let white wing people co-opt your argument, you lose. You lie down with the dogs. You wake up with the fleas. And that's what happened to legitimate AAPI concerns throughout this oral
3: argument. And, And watch them have Clarence write the decision. Because they don't really think diversity matters, except when they need somebody like Clarence to write a decision like this. Watch them have him do it. Uh, Yamiche Alcindor and Ellie Mastal, thank you both very much. Up next, a stunning victory for the leftist political candidate in Brazil counters the right's narrative that their ideology is ascendant worldwide, because it sure ain't winning in the Americas. We'll be right back. Last night, Brazil's right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, was defeated by former president Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva. In scenes eerily reminiscent of November 2020, supporters of Bolsonaro sobbed as his defeat was confirmed. Bolsonaro, nicknamed the Trump of the tropics, has remained largely silent as much of the country waited to see if he would follow Trump's lead and reject the election results. He spent the past months warning that he just might not accept a loss because the election was rigged. The big story is that fascist movements in the Americas, while emboldened, are actually losing. First Trump, now Bolsonaro. Here in the United States, we're a little over a week away from our own midterm elections. And if you believe the recent headlines, you would think that MAGA fascism is ascendant. If you get past those headlines and dig a little deeper, you uncover an insidious and seemingly intentional campaign by Republican-backed polling firms to flood the zone and tip the balance of polling averages in favor of their candidates, to create a narrative that Republicans are surging and that a red wave is imminent and inevitable. Our friend and Democratic pollster Simon Rosenberg has been sounding the alarm for weeks about this wave of polling, noting that if the roughly 40 of the roughly 40 polls taken in key battleground states, more than half, half, are from Republican firms or groups. Over the weekend, the New York Times released four new polls in key battleground states, which showed Democrats either in the lead or tied with their opponent. So why are their polls telling a different story? According to Nate Cohn of the New York Times, most of the polling over the last few weeks is coming from partisan outfits, usually Republican or auto-dial firms. These polls are cheap enough to flood the zone. And it shouldn't come as a total surprise, given that one of those polling aggregators, Real Clear Politics, has become more openly pro Trump. Back in 2020, the New York Times noted that Real Clear Politics has taken a rightward, aggressively pro Trump turn. It also pointed out that their polling averages seemed skewed in Trump's favor. Up next, a look at how all of this plays out in real time, with a Republican candidate locked in a tight race citing junk polls. ...to shift the narrative. Nevada, much like Georgia, could tip the balance of the Senate. A key demographic in that state is Latino voters. And Democrats have relied on their support to make the difference in close elections. Well, last week, Univision released a new poll among Latino voters, showing Democratic incumbent and the first Latina senator, Catherine Cortez Masto, leading her Republican opponent, Adam Laxalt, by roughly 33 points. Naturally, Laxalt, a perennial candidate in the state who's lived most of his life in Washington, D.C., and a promot- proponent of the big lie, dismissed the poll from Spanish-language specialized media company Univision because it failed to say that he is outperforming his opponent.
2: Wildly generous. I mean, there are—people can go through real clear and every single poll. The, the highest it's been is 16 in the last two months. And so there's no way on Earth it's 30. It's a Univision poll, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, tilted against us.
3: I'm joined now by John Ralston, CEO of the Nevada Independent, and Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist and president of the New Democrat Network. Thank you both for being here. John, you're at a disadvantage, so I'm going to go to you first. Just looking at sort of the numbers here, um, the over. well let's look at the Nevada numbers. Steve Sisolak, 45— Joe Lombardo, the Republican, 41. This is the newest poll out of Nevada. Um, And you've got Catherine Cortez Masto, 43, Adam Laxalt, 41. That's the Nevada Independent. How reliable at this point is the polling on the race in Nevada? And in your view, are the sort of polling averages that have tended to show Cortez Masto kind of doomed, are they too over the top and incorrect?
6: Well,
5: first, let me say, Joy, of course, you can trust the Nevada Independent. Uh, that, that's that's your our poll. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, listen, I, I don't put much stock in any polling right now. We yeah. have already had people vote. We've had about a quarter of a million people vote in Nevada. You know, I track these early numbers very closely, and it looks like the Democrats are holding their registration in Nevada. So there are no signs of a red wave. There's no signs of, of, of a big... Democratic wipeout coming. That doesn't mean it can't happen, of course, Joy, but uh, the Hispanic numbers are really interesting. That's 60%. Uh, that you saw from the Univision poll, is about what Catherine Cortez Masto's Democratic internals show. Uh, There is no way that Catherine Cortez Masto could be close in this race, whether it's two points ahead or even, as the New York Times poll showed, if she's not doing really, really well among Hispanics. If Adam Laxalt is only 15 or 16 points behind her with Hispanics, as he claims, she's going to lose, Joy, and lose pretty badly.
3: Right. And, and there's no empirical evidence that Hispanics are turning on the first Latina senator and the only Latina senator. In the, there's no there's no reason for it to be happening. Yeah. It's just being said. You, you've, you've said and tweeted this a lot. You look at these real clear politics averages. You look at the 538 averages and you can't just look at them as, well, I can trust them because it's 538 real clear politics. There's a lot of junk polls in them.
7: Yeah, I think what's really unfortunate is that the places we rely on to help us tell us what's going on in the election have been corrupted by a flood of Republican polling in the last few weeks, I mean now in six major battleground states, more than half the polls conducted in October have been been conducted by Republican firms, and mm-hmm. that means that basically we can't trust. The data on real, clear politics, or 538 any longer, because it's essentially uh, Republican propaganda. And so what it means is, and I agree with John, we should be focusing on the early vote. That's right. The early vote data is telling us we have a lot of people vote. And for Democrats across the country, the data is very, very encouraging. And I would just encourage everybody here, if you're geeking out and you need to look at stuff, right, yeah. go to the early vote, go to the target early site. It's got great data every day to help you understand what's actually happening with real voters, not with polls. <laughs>
3: And, you know, just to give an example of this, and you tweeted this out earlier, yeah. there's a lot of this junk polling, this Republican polling that tries to show that voters of color are surging toward Republicans, <laughs> and not, there's no reason for them to be doing it. Yeah. Herschel Walker, if you look at the percentage of the black vote he's getting, in, in a regular ordinary poll, the regular polls we're used to, like New York Times, Siena, 7%. That's normally what a black Repo- what a Republican would get. Some of these polls are showing Herschel Walker getting like, 25 percent of the black vote. That is ridiculous. you got the same thing with Dr. Oz, you know, trying to show that somehow he's going to get a third of the black vote. There's yeah. no reason for it, but it's just being said.
7: Yeah, listen, these are junk polls. And the Republicans, this is part of the information war. I mean, they're trying to suppress Democratic turnout, create more negative sentiment for Democrats, more positive sentiment for, the, for them. And what I think is disappointing is that many of the, me- the people who really do the analysis on elections should have caught this. I mean this is an unprecedented massive campaign by the Republicans to game the polling averages yeah. and it's disappointing to me that this wasn't caught earlier by many of the people that do this and are on TV and do this for a living. Yeah, so but it's it's extent, it's really it has to be understood now that the polling averages have been corrupted. And that we now need to look, in my view, towards the early vote.
3: Yeah. And if you look, I mean, if, if you just read RCP, you, you can yeah. see that they lead Republican. But it's getting really intense. I yeah. want to talk to you, John Rawson, because Nevada is one of those special states that has actually a really high quality Democratic Party that Harry Reid, that the party that Reid built. I remember when I was working in Florida politics, our greatest envy was that we couldn't be Nevada <laughs> because Nevada had such a great Democratic Party operation. There's this other sort of, you know, sort of meme going around that that party has completely fallen apart without Harry Reid. Is there anything to that?
5: Yeah, this is all this speculative journalism that says, is the Reed machine faltering without Harry Reed? Uh, the bottom line is, listen, Harry Reed was a towering force in Nevada. I'm writing a book about him, so I know this, Joy. But the people who are running the Reed machine, yeah. the, the, uh, operating the levers of that powerful organization are basically the same people. That That machine was built. It's still there. Now, whether it works or not, as well as it has in the past, considering all the headwinds that Democrats are facing is another question. But if any machine can overcome that, it's the read machine. And by the way, I agree with Simon. People should geek out on the early voting numbers, but not on the sites he's talking about, on
3: the Nevada Independence <laughs>
7: site. <boy. laughs>
3: Just follow John Ralston and follow Simon Rosenberg. That's who you guys should be following. If you guys are not on Twitter anymore, find them wherever you can find them, yep. um, because they've actually got real data. Uh, John Ralston, Simon Rosenberg. Thank you guys very much much. And before we go, the Readout Roadshow is coming to Florida on Wednesday. We'll be live from Ace Cafe in Orlando, where my guests will include the Democratic candidate for Senate, Congresswoman Val Demings, and the man who is challenging Ron DeSantis, former Governor Charlie Crist. I hope to see you all there. I will not be in costume. This is as much as I'm getting for Halloween. This is all you get. I hope you guys were paying attention to the lipstick changes. Thank you guys for watching.